0: The S&P, the O6, stop. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that didn't spend two hours this week with Oprah. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, is not the Duchess of Sussex, not even the Duke of Sussex, but the Doctor of Style. Dr. Nibar Mahanti, how are you, buddy? Uh, oh, well, I'm good. I
1: wish I was on, uh, on television, you
0: know. Got... <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you really want to spend two hours with Oprah talking about your private life?
1: Well, if I got paid for it,
0: <laughs> did they get paid? I suppose they did. Did you? Did Wait, you watch any of it?
1: Uh, no, I just watched some clips here and there. And okay. I, well, I read more than I watched. You know, I read how the <laughs> how um, oh, how the monarchy is disappointed. But you know, like somebody paid me, you know, a couple hundred million dollars to do an interview, why not? Like, I mean, wouldn't you do it <laughs> if you got of a paid a couple hundred million? I'd, yeah. I'd, Talk about my private
0: life. I would have no issues with it. All right. We probably shouldn't shouldn't turn to a royal watching podcast, I suppose. Uh, Although I'm happy to... Yeah, we can can tangent as long as we want on this one, but let's assume we're not going to do that. Uh, Let's assume instead we're going to talk about the world of business and finance and economics. We've got... uh, Well, so we've got business, business confidence to talk about. The RBA, Governor Lowe was out this week with actually a pretty remarkable speech saying nothing different, but everything. Uh, we've got the lessons from the green Greensill collapse. If you haven't heard about that one, stay tuned. And of course, some changes to Energy Australia's energy uh, resources and energy mix. We've got US stimulus. We've got Treasury wines, mate, and also money printing because we love a bit of money printing, but a bit of inflation. Let's get on with it. What do you say?
1: Well, I say everybody should watch The Crown. That's my. <laughs> Have you watched The Crown? I have actually watched okay, all four okay. seasons, oh, well, and, oh, there I, you go. and I strongly recommend it. Uh, it's nice. uh, brilliantly made. Well, I mean, how much is truth and how much is fiction? Yeah. But it's very nicely. Ah, made.
0: it's the art of so. the story, right? Yeah, exactly. Then again, sometimes uh, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say, mate. So maybe, maybe it's uh, maybe the maybe the reality is even more weird. Who knows? All right, let's let's move on. So, I mean, uh, this week was a big week. I say this from most weeks, a uh, big week in macro. Uh, let's start with some of the data that came out. and What's going on? Um, I am still, I mean, I, I don't want to be a broken record on this. I'm increasingly worried that central banks and governments have forgotten what neutral looks like, what normal looks like, right? Um, the RBA government will talk about it in a second, but saying that, you know, he's looking for an unemployment rate below 4%. Now, I love that as a concept for the society and people that may be otherwise out of a job. That would be the lowest unemployment rate, though, in literally decades. I mean, they weren't pursuing these sort of emergency-style policies through the 70s, 80s, and 90s and the 2000s. And the 2010s, man, I've getting old. I had to put eight extra decades there. Um, you know, they just these policies weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't oh, I must say overstimulated. They weren't stimulated to this degree when the when empl- unemployment was normal at five, six, seven percent. Um so I, I just it makes me wonder, so business confidence is the best in a decade, right? Now that tells me that businesses are feeling great, and I assume, I think it's reasonable to assume, that means more employment, more business spending, more business investment. Consumer confidence is high um the best it's been all year uh the best it's been four years I think five years business confidence uh, consumer confidence record we've had the most recent couple of quarters of gdp were record quarters i i kind of you know the government's throwing half price flights at us 800000 apparently flights at half price um might not be an airline shareholder by the way but might, i might rant about that in a minute i i'm i mean yes the recovery is fragile yes we could always do better i it feels to me like the severity of the economic challenge and the size and kind of panickedness there's no word but I just made it up of the RBA's response feel like they just had a kilter to me.
1: Yeah so like I mean uh, I echo I think I agree with everything you're saying like I mean in my time in Australia I don't I can't recall when uh, unemployment was below 5% it wasn't below 5% right I mean actually an expectation expectation that it's going to go below 4% is you need a fundamental step change in how the economy works for it to actually go below 4%. So yeah, exactly. Uh, so I I just don't think it's ever going to go below 4% without that <laughs> fundamental step change. So, uh, you know, Governor Lowe can try whatever he wants to try. It's just not going to get there, um, I mean, which is he, why... I mean,
0: he may get there. What my, my biggest concern is that by the time he gets there, the economy, the stimulus, everything is so up against a wall that, you know, like Alan, Alan Greenspan during the, during the 90s was an absolute hero, right? I was 80, sorry. Until he wasn't. You know, easy money was supposed to be the ticket to everything until all of a sudden we looked back and went, oh, hang on. Low interest rates actually cause problems. You know, they don't just solve problems, they cause problems. And what worries me is, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm absolutely sure if the government and the IBA wanted to, they get, they get employment to less than 4%. They do in a heartbeat. I just don't know whether pumping the patient with that much morphine is not going to kill him in the, in the process. It just, you know, it, it strikes me that you want to be careful what you wish for, at least at some level.
1: Yeah, so let, let me rephrase. What, what, I think under normal circumstances, mm-hmm. without, like, so, for example, yes, the government could get to 0% un- unemployment by basically saying, well, I'm going to employ everyone. Who's? Yeah, who is, exactly. yeah I, I'm going to give a job to everyone who's unemployed, uh, and yeah. uh, you know, run the biggest government department, and then uh, call the employment department, and then everybody's employed. But what All I'm right, basically right. saying is that I think there is no way. There's just absolutely. I'm almost willing to bet a beer on this that there is no way the government or the RBA. Can actually get the unemployment rate below four percent. I'm willing to bet a beer on that. It's just, it's just not going to happen because the fundamentals required for making those changes. What you really need to do is investment in people, right? Mm -hmm. You need people to be trained to actually have those jobs that people would businesses need. Right? right, 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 and and I think that's what's missing, right? So you you don't you, if you don't have the skill sets required for those jobs, that would actually get you to the three percent. You're not going to get to the three mm-hmm. percent. So I think that's that's the yeah. um, I, I, I think the fundamental uh, issue at, at uh, right. And and you know the other thing that I think people need to realize is technology is going to eat away into um, mm-hmm. less productive, high cost work. It's going to slowly just chip away at that, whether it's automation or the software and things like that. So, um, being a higher wage uh, economy also hurts you. It's actually going to, it's fundamentally going to result in a higher unemployment rate, right? Because it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to employ, say, someone to do. Some data entry when that data entry can actually oh, happen right. automati- automatically, exactly. or can happen, exactly. or happen yeah. for a lower cost somewhere else, right? So yeah, it right, just exactly. so businesses are going to make business decisions, right? And therefore, uh, it, it, I just think it's unachievable. So, yeah. and, and that that is completely separate from I think the rates argument. I think the rates uh, sometimes I like to read between the lines, and I think it's not about <laughs> you know. the the governor can say whatever he wants to say, but I think the governor has got basically the, a very simple problem. The yeah. governor has got a consumer-driven economy where the consumer spends based on house prices. Yeah. House prices are a function of, um, uh, of, um, of low interest rates, yeah. and therefore you jack up the interest rate, the house prices go down, house prices go down, people feel, don't feel like spending, therefore they don't spend. So, if I'm governor low, what do I do? Well, as long as I'm governor, I just keep the house prices low and somebody else's <laughs> problem, right?
0: Um, so, to that point, mate, so that was the next thing I was going to talk about because that is almost exactly what I mean. Governor low is not, not hiding from that, not pretending on that one. He's actually said during the week, literally, we are not trying to manage house prices. So, in, in the sense that I'm not saying he's not trying to push them up, he is saying that his policy tools are not designed to impact house prices, i.e. he's not going to try and push them back down again if he thinks they're too high with interest rates. He's very clearly said well, we're not going to use rates to stop house prices increasing. So, yeah, you know, not, to, yeah. to your very point, that's he's almost he's almost admitted exactly yeah. that. Now, he did say that they may use other macro tools if they feel that bank lending is becoming inappropriate uh, oh yeah, so macroprudential rules are things like limiting the amount of debt growth as they've done in the past or limiting the loan to valuation ratios for investment loans they're tools they've used in the past they're called macroprudential. Um, macro being large prudential being of course the oversight of the banks so that, that's kind of what he said look we may use those tools but I was I mean I don't think we're, you and I aren't surprised we've talked about this so many times he clearly isn't worried about house prices otherwise he wouldn't be doing what he's doing with rates but I, I've never heard him I don't think or never noticed him say you know I'm not going to use rates to try and cool house prices
1: Again, that doesn't surprise me, right? So I mean, politicians and bureaucrats never say exactly what it is, right? So I'm saying exactly what it is. He wants house prices to go up.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> he yeah.
1: actually does want house prices to go up right, because right, right, that's yeah. what he thinks gives wealth effect. He thinks, and the RBA thinks it gives wealth effect, which therefore results in spending, which therefore is going to get you out of this morassus, abscess, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it you're in, <laughs> um, if far you're far in that abscess. Let's go with both, uh, um, yeah. Or you know, trough, whatever it is, like you know, value <laughs> of death that they think yeah, that we are in, yeah. and then therefore they, you know, and it's a, it's a classic case of it's not going to be my problem, yeah, <laughs> it's going right. to be somebody else's problem. I think. So you know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, like I've said this many times. I think it's very poor policy to. Mm to try to stimulate an economy just by house prices, because what, you, what you're what you doing is you're slowly making the economy uncompetitive over time, right? Uh, by focusing on one sector, that should really not be that big a sector if, if you have a big economy, right? But you know, it turns out that that's, that's the sector which basically decides everything. So, um, you know, it's again, maybe there's no problem right now, maybe there's no problem in the intermediate, maybe, but I'm almost certain that this causes problems over the long term, because it basically, yeah, that's set.
0: that's what worries me, mate. Yeah. I I, I yeah. worry that we're going to kill the patient by trying to save them, or not not kill them. Kill them's too, too dramatic, but you know, potentially cause more long term dramas. Um, I, I won't I won't go too far into the medical. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, obviously. You are, but not a not a medical doctor. Uh, I'll go too far into the, the medical analogies, but there is some sense that you know you you administer drugs while the patient's super sick, and then you wean them off them as they get better, allowing them to recover on their own. I kind of feel like we are you know all drugs all the time until there's absolute proof that the patient can run a marathon if you give someone morphine or something else for that long, you're actually creating more problems for them than you're solving. The, you know, there's, there's a time to take it back. Um, just just for what it's worth, mate, I will mention, I have done. I won't call it research, but I've Googled while you were talking. Um, the Australian unemployment rate did fall below 5% between about 2005 and about 2008. Uh, and it sorry, troughed, I suppose, if you like, just above 4% in about 2008, based on some numbers I'm looking at now, which I got to say, mate, is good in one sense. So yes, we can get back there again. On the other hand, it's almost my point, right? By the time you get rate that low, the settings that were in the economy, guess what? Created the GFC. So I'm not sure we should be using that as a, as a as an interesting mark. I will say over the longer term too, mate, another chart I just found, um, unemployment averaged 4.9% for the first 25 years of last century, so the 1900s, 4.9. Then between 1925, and 1940, the war years averaged 10.8, which obviously was unusual. After that, from 40 to 74, averaged 1.9%, if you can believe that, but then from 75, 74 through to 97, averaged 7.6%. So yes, there have been times in the past where unemployment rate is very, very low. Of course, the post-war boom. But hard to, I mean, you know, that was, that was such a different economy. Hard to believe we have the economic circumstances, settings to really meaningfully change that number. But maybe I'm um, maybe I'm just being cynical. Maybe I'm being negative. Maybe we're looking back in 10 years time. We're both saying, you know what? Actually turned out okay and things were all right. No, don't is that too optimistic? I mean, it could be.
1: Like, again, <laughs> I, I, I think yeah, <laughs> the, well, the answer is could be because I don't think there's any science that basically can tell you, right? So, yeah, so exactly. Uh, exactly. you know, Governor Lowe is just speculating as much as I am. I was, as I've always said, I can take that yeah. job and I'll do it for a quarter of the price. And <laughs> and if the job is all about keeping the rates low, that's very simple. Anybody can do all
0: it. All to do, right? Um, uh, too much. So, oh, go on, go on. Yeah, no, that's it. Last, Lastly on Low, uh, not to rally up even further, but uh, if I'll take the risk... Um, what, what I actually thought was interesting, mate, was low. pretty much called out the bond market. You know, the, the, the bond market has been uh, assuming based on the forward rates. And if people, if people are wondering how we know what the bond market thinks, um, the bond market prices in changes to interest rates out one, two, three years and says, by this time, we think rates will be X, right? So they they kind of take those bets and that's how they make their money. They, they try and trade those things. So the bond markets are already paying higher interest rates out two and three years, when the RBA has clearly said, no, 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 2024 is the time. So the, the modern market betting rates will be higher earlier. Lowe was really, really clear. He basically said, look, you guys got it wrong. When, when Rates are not going to go up. We are going to wait till we get wage inflation and rates are not going to go up until that happens and it's not going to be till 2024. And I think there's one thing... I've, I've kind of, I want to say defended Lowe in the past, but I've been clear to people that the RBI had never said really, and still hasn't really said, had never said rates won't go up until 2024. What they said was rates won't go up until wage and price inflation go up. And we don't think that'll happen until 2024. They've never promised 2024 was the date. But Lowe kind of doubling down on that forecast in some pretty serious ways, right? I mean, yeah, he's entitled to be wrong. The bond market is entitled to be wrong. But kind of came out and said, look, no, 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 you guys are wrong. We, this is not going to happen for, for a few years, and we are not going to blink. And I thought that was just an interesting, you know, the first time he's given his comments in the context of the bond market, which I thought were fascinating.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, here's the thing, right? The bond market is a huge market. There are many yeah. moving parts in the bond market, so I don't know how he can make that forecast because currency is a big. I mean, the moment rates start going up elsewhere, it'll yeah. be very fascinating to see what low can do.
0: There's a lot of pressure on, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I, you know, well, I, I don't think yeah, it hits
0: yeah, too much, actually, mate. If I push the dollar down, you'd probably be happy with that. But at some point, as you say, that that impacts local borrowing rates, and the whole thing unravels pretty fast. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, you know, I mean, unlike the Fed, I think, which has reserve currency benefits, I mean, law doesn't have that benefit, right? So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Right. Lo is Lo is playing with uh, uh, playing with fire and hoping the house doesn't catch us fire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you so. go. With that, let's move on, mate. Now, during the during the week, there's this Greensill collapse. I we should talk about it only in as much as it pertains to the, the market. Now, these are private companies. Greensill is a private finance company that basically was an intermediary between companies and their debtors. It provided debt to companies um, to allow them to basically pay their bills and, and operate their businesses. As a kind of quasi-bank, a kind of quasi-line of credit provider, it's more complex than that, but we'll stick with that for our purposes because I'm, I'm a simple man, Doc. Um, so, that, that's, that's, you now, it's collapsed. In Australia, we have a business called GFG, I want to say. The the business run by Sanjeev Gupta that took over, the way Alice Steel works when Arium collapsed. It also owns a couple of mini mills in Sydney and Brisbane. uh, Sydney, Melbourne, I should say. And it's one of those stories where, look, this is not going to impact any investors because we are not, you know, these are private companies. It will potentially impact up to 6,500 jobs, by the way. So there's an economic impact and a very human impact if this thing goes to the wall and if there are jobs lost. But I thought it was interesting just to talk about because... It, it, it's as an investor, it reminded me of that idea that that the small probability of a major catastrophe in an investment thesis is really something you shouldn't overlook. I'm not saying you should avoid it. You can absolutely take it on and say I'm prepared for that because if it happens, so be it. Right. So I'm not saying don't do it. What I just wanted to, to highlight to our listeners, mate, was just the the impact of that idea that in this case, of all of the things that could have bought GFG undone, of all of the things that could have caused it problems the collapse of its kind of intermediary financier is not something that I don't think many people can have considered. Maybe it was steel prices, maybe it was um, industrial policy, maybe it was input costs, maybe it was something else. Uh, maybe it was the size of the debt. Those things absolutely would have been on everybody's risk list. But I don't think, I mean, again, I could be wrong. I'm sure some people thought about it because there's a lot of people and someone at some point probably said something. Um, but the chance that, you know, it's the equivalent of, you know, all of a sudden CBA removing your line of credit and i be able to get more debt. And I just thought that was interesting because it had echoes of a few things. The first had it goes off was, and we've just talked about bank debt, has echoes of the Wizard Aussie home loans thing in the, I want to say 90s, I think it was. I'm, I'm dating myself. No, it was GFC. Anyway, whatever it was. Um, they had, it must have been the GFC. They had their lines of credit frozen really fast. And so those mortgage brokers were offering really low rates because they were taking the bet that they could provide um, liquidity, borrow at short-term rates on the you know, 30-day money market, and then make 30-year mortgages. So borrow borrow for 30 days, offer a 30-year mortgage. You can see where that's going. It's all fine if it keeps going, right? But if it changes, you're in trouble. And of course, we know in in hindsight, it changed. Credit markets froze, things fell over. There's also echoes, frankly, of the COVID stuff, right? The chances that a pandemic, I've never put a pandemic in my my investment risk category for any stock I've ever bought uh, personally or on behalf of our services. Um, And frankly, I owned... Uh, corporate travel and webjet when this thing went badly. So, Frank, you know, I've, I've, I've been caught up in that. Our members got caught up in that. Um, and again, I'm not saying we should avoid those things. There's always something that could break every company. Every company you could go through and say, okay, well, what if no one buys groceries anymore? Well, this is a terrible idea. Or, you know, what if Walmart opens up? Or, you know, there's, there's, there's a million reasons why you shouldn't own any company. So you've got to take some sort of calculated risk. But I just thought, it was worth pointing out, just, you know, th- this is not a reason not to invest in companies like this, but a reason to be dif- to be diversified, a reason to make sure you know what you own, a reason to think about the risks, a reason to think about the debt that your company's carrying. In this particular case, it's not just debt, as I said, COVID was its own problem. So it's not just debt, but debt is a recurring problem, isn't it? Like it's one of those things. The longer you invest, the more debt events you see, whether they are global, local, company specific. Um, and again I'm not saying don't invest in companies with debt I certainly do I don't have a lot of them by the way and I think that's probably prudent but I I just thought it was interesting I don't know if you have any any thoughts on it I said I want to talk about Greensill I mean you're welcome to uh, but I didn't necessarily want to talk about it in particular because it's not super relevant no one's invested in it but um, the the lessons from that and and just kind of the unexpected um, cause of of the I don't think GFG's collapsed yet it's desperately working with its financiers to try and find a way to save itself but if they can't find a solution this thing is literally shut down overnight
1: yeah, I think you hit all the right points. I don't know much about what's going on, so you've you've described, and I've learned something here of what's going on. But yeah, like I like you, I'd say that debt is something that you know you need to. Like I mean, debt, and you know, basically access to liquid funds mm-hmm. is is almost you know it's probably the probably the number one reason why businesses go bust. So, and yeah, right. and how that access to funds uh, could vanish is something that for for listed businesses, right? I mean. You might say the business, has, you know, the balance sheet looks strong, but if it's got a few million dollars of cash, if it runs through that cash, you know, it needs to find more yeah, cash exactly, at short yeah, order. Right. And if nobody's willing to, you know, pony up that cash, at that, point, whether it's the equity market or or a lender, um, yeah. then you've yeah. got problems. So, yeah, I, I think you know, it's, it's good to think through. I I, I think the main thing you have pointed out, I think, is is the right one, is that it's good to know, know think about ways in which. Um, things could go wrong without, I guess, uh, you know, getting too bogged down by the fact that, well, there are many ways in which these things could go, go wrong. But if you start, like, thinking about everything and spend too much time thinking about <laughs> everything, then you might just feel like, okay, there's nothing worth investing because everything has a probability of totally. going wrong. So, I mean, thinking through so that you know what are the, what are the possibilities is important. And then yeah. probably having an having a assignment of probability, I guess, of things going wrong is the yeah. other part.
0: And just being diversified, right? So if one thing does go wrong, then you're not yes. going to bring your whole portfolio come crashing down. Mate, um, speaking of crashing down, you, you raised something to me that I had kind of only given scant attention to this week. And it was the early closure of the Energy Australia coal-fired power station. I'm going to say it's called Yalorn. Um, there's going to be listeners who are who are yelling at their little podcast machines now saying, you're pronouncing it wrong. Um, I've never heard it pronounced. I've only s- seen it spelt. So I'm going to say Yalorn and hope I'm even slightly close. Um, it was supposed to close, I want to say 2032, the company's now said it's going to close in 2028. Um, I thought I want to say again, for just from my very quick research, it was just something like a fifth of Victoria's energy. This is a this is a big, big chunk of production that um, now the, the, the energy minister of Victoria's come out and said we'll be fine, don't worry. And I guess you would have to do that, and they probably are. But this is this is kind of big news, right? When you when you have a plant that's there, the, the 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 thesis or the story normally goes, hey, all of the cost of of energy plants in general, renewable or otherwise is in the setup. And once they're set up, the cost of production is only a small amount. And once you have got that sunk cost in there, it makes the production itself reasonably cost competitive. It sounds like either that's wrong or the costs have changed or the price has changed. What's going on in your lawn for Energy Australia?
1: Well, it looks like the price structures have changed. Like, I mean, basically uh, the amount of wind and solar energy that we are inputting is having a meaningful impact Mm -hmm. on demand for energy. And if it's having a, a meaningful impact on demand for energy, it has a meaningful impact on overall prices that people are willing to pay for, um, or, or right. uh, think about, you know, like on a, on a wholesale basis when people are bidding for energy, right? You know, the amount of people are willing to pay for it has basically goes down. So this is pure economics at play, right? I mean, this is not, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm not trying to hug the t- green tree here. It's just pure <laughs> economics at work. Yeah, that's, that's it, right? That's exactly that's, it. These guys, that's,
0: aren't, these guys aren't trying to save trees, they're trying to save money.
1: They're just trying to save money, and the pure economics at, at this point is saying the green energy, and is the way to go forward. And you know, because you can have intermittent energy sources, everybody's building, as you said, the biggest battery plant, right? So there's one mm-hmm. biggest battery plant in New South Wales, biggest battery plant in Yellorne, biggest battery plant wherever, so that you can adapt for the intermittent ed- energy generation with storage. So I, I think it's it's just fascinating how. Um, you know sort of technology maturity so to speak right so why is this happening right um, if you bought solar panels 10 years ago their efficiency versus the efficiency today is day and night right and then compare the cost it's also day and night the same thing is happening at uh, at the wind level the same thing is happening at the storage level and and it's just fascinating how that cost curve is basically causing all these changes so i, I, I think that's mm, it's um, purple, hey? yeah it's it's I think the, the decline in cost is something that people actually don't think of, Like the, and, and the speed at which technology innovation can actually drive costs down is another thing that people really you know, should pay more attention to. And I think, you know, I guess globally, there's a global point here too, right? Globally, there aren't going to be many new coal-fired plants that are going to be built.
0: Right, exactly, yeah.
1: Right, because the cost, co- cost plus the environmental cost, right, the real cost plus the environmental cost together uh, is just going to make them, uh, you know, infeasible effectively. So, uh, there's, you know, there's a long-term question of, you know, what's the price of coal and coal mining, and what's the future of coal mining, uh, as well. So, if you're an investor in one of those, that's that's an interesting question to think about.
0: It's a, it is, man. I think this is. Um it's gonna become a bigger issue. And I think this is one of those things we've seen a plenty of companies start to move down this path too. We've seen uh, companies, you know, Fortescue is investing something like is it I want to say ten percent of its profits in this new kind of renewable energy business it's trying to build. And again, Twiggy, yeah, he's probably a bit of a greenie underneath, I suppose, but he's also a pretty hard nosed businessman. He's built a he's built a business digging coal out of the ground, sending it to China. Um, he's sniffing the wind and seeing which way this stuff is going companies are increasingly implementing you know the old ESG environmental social and governance policies almost ahead of government here in Australia because they know which way the wind's blowing they know which way the economics are going they know which way global policy is going they know which way consumer um, sentiment business sentiment is going and it seems in this case it's one of those things where and I've said this before even if you don't believe in it even if you don't agree with it the, the realities of how business is operating now, what's actually going to make the change, even purely economically, as you rightly say, is um it's hard to it's hard to ignore, right? These things are just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. It's interesting too to me, and we talked about this I think a little bit before, that AGL uh, actually wrote down, was it 1.4 billion is in my head, on real a huge energy projects. Um even you know even the old wind farms are getting are getting too expensive, rather right? than just not generating the profit they should or should have been, or were hoped to deliver, because the cost curve is coming out even on even on renewables, even the, even the most recent <laughs> renewables, um, and it's just a really amazing story of a whole industry literally being turned on its head by technology, innovation, investment, uh, I, I, all of those things, and more, and none, and kind of it's hard to hard to even describe what that is, but there is a wave of just kind of tech and cost based um, disruption. That is just washing over an entire. We are literally seeing an entire industry almost. Uh, in my head, I've got this tidal wave kind of image of you know these plants being washed away. I'm not a particularly you know, um, it, I'm not an artist. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not a particularly visual thinker generally. But as I'm talking, it just there is just this this literal sense of this wave going right through an industry, leaving almost nothing behind it, other than in its place that the cheaper energy, where it's cheaper now to create new energy, new new, new power plants, than to actually maintain and run older ones the capital cost is actually worth incurring, which is you know really, really, really unusual, right? Like we think about um, you know, moats, the, the idea of sustainable competitive advantage, and often an installed base against a competitor is a really, really, really attractive moat. If you know your competitor's got to build a new factory to build to make the widgets you're already making, there's a very good chance you can beat them at that, that game, right? Because by the time they build the new factory and then try and meet you on cost, you built the factory 10, 15 years ago, your widget factory is going to be at scale, it's efficient, Someone trying to build a new widget factory is going to really, really struggle. Um, and that's normally a pretty good competitive advantage, right? Just that that installed cost. When you can genuinely shut down a business, that, an operation that's already going, and replace it with something you're building brand new and it's still cheaper. That's a, I mean, that's a heck of a change to the cost curve of the of the whole industry, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think the the thing with the with the idea of comparable behind large scale investment, mm-hmm. right? I think what the the interesting thing is at least in my mind, when you so think about you know think about producing cars, right? So think about Ford Motor Company and it's numerous numerous plants all across the globe, right? Now that's yeah, something yeah. that has happened over say 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years, right, right? right? Many of those things are now, if you think about like the competitive advantage of you know manufacturing or something that you' built, they yes, they have been upgraded. Uh, over time but you know you can't it's very difficult to have a step change in uh, in something that was built say 50 years ago right and i think the energy yeah. industry yeah. Is, is is another example right the energy industry is 50 60 70 80 years so most of these uh, you know the the foundations of the energy industry was laid around world mm-hmm. wars right so world war 2 yeah around that time and you know even earlier is when the foundation was laid for many of these things so I think you can have competitive advantage from, like, the sunk right. cost in large-scale um, I- industries which require large-scale, um, you know, investments, but those also have a finite lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. And, and over those 50 years, I think technology, or 50, 40, 50, 60 years, technology improves so much, technology changes so much that there are new paradigms possible, new ways of doing things that, um, you know, change... Uh, allow allow all these new things to happen. So I think you know, energy industry as a whole, the grid um, is in dire needs for uh, change, and that's really what's mm-hmm. happening right now. Mm-hmm. And and you know, you see that in many other industries, which are you know, heavy manufacturing or you know, basically anything that is a so called industry. I think mm-hmm. you know, they, they they are they are changing. Right? I mean, the whole the whole idea of smart grids, right? I mean, that doesn't yeah, exist yeah. right fifteen, yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 yeah. years ago. So um, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, amazing stuff. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
0: Make some... uh, (laughs) I, i'm i'm kind of from 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 amazing to less so um <laughs> let's go to uh, treasury Wine assets. says we talked about it a little bit i own some shares uh so let's let's put that on the table i actually bought some more this week for full disclosure um not that i need to disclose that but i just thought it was appropriate given we're talking about it um the shares are pretty cheap right now because the market doesn't believe it has the future that it thinks it has and obviously i think it has by definition we'll see so who's right it may well be the market um what I thought was fascinating about this doc and and this is uh, yes it goes from very big picture really important kind of you know environment and economic uh, economy changing stuff like energy to to wine in this case Treasury's done something really really interesting they basically have franchised their business in the US and they haven't called it that they've called it licensing it's the same thing or you know the different things a little bit but franchising kind of is the, the the kind of concept that applied to me appealed to me because the way they're kind of going about this, they're saying to another group called the Wine Group, fascinating name, um, they're saying you can license our product in the US. They're almost effectively kind of you know, granting a a sales territory to the Wine Group to go and do the business on behalf of those brands. And I thought that was interesting because they weren't selling the US business, which was kind of what the market had assumed. They weren't divesting it, closing it. Um, they're, They're keeping the brands and then kind of giving or, or offering the license to somebody else to sell those brands. And I, I actually thought this was, and maybe I'm biased, maybe I'm completely biased. I, it struck me initially, and, maybe, and for, by the way, tell me if you disagree. Um, it just struck me as a clever way to think about solving a problem. Penfolds and, and other products in the US, they keep the Penfolds brands, but those they've had a real struggle selling brands in the US competitively. The prices have been too low of competitors. Their sales structure seems to have been reasonably poor. They've lost their head of sales over there for, we assume, those sort of reasons. Um, and it seems like they've kind of gone, you know what, We there are brands we like and we're going to keep them, but we acknowledge we haven't built a sales capability in the US. And so we'll kind of let you guys do it. And it reminds me of, you know, businesses like Nanasonics that, you know, build these Trophon machines and we won't go a heap into that necessarily unless you want to. Um, but, you know, and then they said to, or they have said in the past, will come Like, gee, hey, you guys go and sell it. You've got the network, you've got the business. They're our, that's our business, our brand. But in America, you guys go and sell it because you you guys have the business. Now, then are then subsequently taking that business back, but it just, it just felt like it was a, I thought it was a reasonably innovative way to think about solving a problem without kind of giving everything away, without kind of having the ability at some future point to take back those brands and kind of capture the upside for yourself. I, I, I don't know if you think it's a, a bridge If I made, They should have sold it and got rid of it and been done with it. Um, but I thought it was a reasonably innovative, at least idea to try, to not have to sell the or give away the family jewels, but still recognize that right now they aren't the business best place to actually make those sales.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, basically it's a way of saying that you know, you're using... A third party to do sales and marketing for you. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, you, you know, you're basically disbanding your own sales and marketing team, um, which I guess was not as effective. And uh, it's an acknowledgement that you know it's a, it's not as big a business for you or important business for you right now, at least. Or the cost involved to make it an important business for you is is probably not warranted. And therefore, it's a way of it's it's yeah, I, can't be, I don't mind the decision. And um, I think that sort of strategy can, I mean, you can use a well-oiled distribution mechanism to actually get a good foothold into things. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I think a positive is, is that. I think the negative would be it's an acknowledgement, I guess, which you've already pointed out, is the acknowledgement that, the effort made to build a sales team there has come to a knot. That has been, and it's now being acknowledged that that was a failure. uh, And this is a reset of strategy. Um, So, you know, you can always ask the question, is it a problem with uh, the sales and marketing? Is it a problem with the management team? Uh, You know, the the higher ups, is it a problem with the brands? And
0: those are the questions. So, I mean, I think that's a really uh, yeah. good point, actually, mate. I, I love that point because that's that's the flip side. And it's something I had thought about but should and didn't mention it or should have. That L, that idea that they're effectively admitting, hey, we can't do this. And for a business that prides itself on being a sales and marketing machine elsewhere around the world, to, to kind of, you know, yes, yes each market is different. And, and certainly we know that with businesses struggling to make a foothold in China, speaking of treasury, uh, although they've been kicked out for different reasons. But other businesses have struggled to get growth in China. In theory, sales and marketing is sales and marketing. It's got to be tailored, of course, but there is some there is some kind of admission of defeat here of like, no matter how good we think we are in other countries, we simply can't get it together in the U S which is also, I mean, you know, ego wise, I guess on one hand, I'm kind of glad the company was able to at least admit it to itself. On the other hand, you wonder how is it possible to have built such a strong brand, strong size of marketing effort in Australia and China until the government changes mind and not be able to do it in the U S there is something of a lack of something or an absence of something in terms of the growth in those businesses.
1: Well, uh, that, that doesn't, you know, you know. here's the thing, right? I think a, I think it's really good for a company to actually accept defeat and know when to accept defeat, right? It, it's, it's. What would you rather want? That you want them to make realize that this is not working and make a decision that may work, or continue down the path and waste money, right? So I, I, I think it's very hard for people to say, oh, this is not working, and it's especially for management of big companies to say, oh, this is not working. We need to try something else. I think I give them credit for that. The other thing that I think it's it's we do that here, but I think what people need to realize is the U.S. consumer market is the world's largest consumer market. It's also the most competitive consumer
0: market of the world. Mate, it's going to be a fascinating story, the the Treasury story. Maybe more fascinating for me than for you. Uh, I know you're a keen business watcher, but uh, I have skin in the game, so I'm I'm desperately hoping they're making the right decisions over there at Treasury HQ. If nothing else, mate, at least I can console myself with uh, a good glass of red from uh, from the from the, <laughs> the Treasury Estate's uh, stable. And maybe I can drink myself back to profitability. Let's find out. Let's find out. Mate, last one quickly on um, two things out of the US. We want to turn our attention to the US for a second. And they're kind of related because we saw news. We're recording this on Thursday morning, the 11th of March, as we always do. Um, news literally was breaking as we came on that the US, uh Congress had finally passed Biden's 1.9 trillion, with a T TR, trillion dollar stimulus package. I have... Similar concerns, by the way, about the U.S. do it here at home and how much stimulus you actually need at this point of the economic recovery relative to where you've been and where you're going and what's already happening. The US economy is already back in, in good growth as we are uh, and we're still throwing more money at stuff. But I, I can only assume that hopefully the lawmakers, they know what they're doing. I don't know their economy anywhere near as well as ours, mate. So it may well be needed. It may well be relevant and appropriate. Let's Let's hope so. Um, so, look, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but what I, what you did mention to me before we started on air this morning was um, a really interesting stat about the so-called money printing in the US. And this is one that I had had no concept of. I'm not super worried about the money printing in general anyway, because it doesn't seem to have driven a lot of inflation, but maybe my, my worries were actually misplaced, the right outcome for the wrong reasons. You said there's a very good reason why the money printing, in air quotes, being done in the US is actually not really money printing at all.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think in one of the podcasts, we, uh, I think I referenced this data without actually digging through because th- there's, you know, this has been floating around and various people on Twitter are talking about, well, you know, 40% or 50% of all the money that has ever been printed in the U.S. has been printed in the last year. And that's because of a graph that the Federal Reserve releases, which shows a huge spike in what they call M1. So M1 is basically money that is readily available, uh, sitting in what they call checking accounts available okay. for use yes. and basically there is right. no restriction on the number of times you can take money out from that account and it's it's basically money that's available right now for spending
0: and that's what one is supposed to measure how much cash is in the economy and it's supposed to be a proxy for hopefully some sort of pent-up demand or at least pent-up ability to grow the economy so the higher m1 is in theory the more money there is in the economy the more stimulus there should be but also the risk was that would also mean more inflation because more money chasing the same assets and the same consumer goods should push prices up right
1: exactly exactly so then you know of course now the the various stimulus bills while they are large they have not printed you know 50% of that total <laughs> uh, m1 that is available that's right a lot. so that's a lot. it's a lot so so w- why so the m1 chart shoots up a lot and that's because the fed basically pulled a you know rabbit out of its hat and what it basically <laughs> did is basically said to banks that you've got uh m1 which basically has unlimited withdrawal facility and then there's what's called savings account which is effectively like a term deposit sort of like a term deposit quasi term deposit um, okay. where do you get a higher interest where there are limits on how many withdrawals you can make per month i think the number is something like four or six or some some number right okay. now th- theoretically that doesn't make any difference right because effectively i can you know make Two withdrawals in a month and take out the entire savings that <laughs> yeah, I've got sitting there, and exactly. and, and, and an move it.
0: number, right?
1: And move it to my checking account. But yeah, what the, yeah. so the Fed, the Fed basically said, well, because that's arbitrary, and because we, you know, because some people maybe uh, anchor to this number six and or think of it differently. What we're going to do is, we're going to remove the restrictions on the savings account, and basically you can have unlimited number of withdrawals.
0: Oh, All right. So it was it was an, it was a Fed imposed rule that. Okay, so so there's the, the what they call the checking accounts. We would call just a transaction account. So just the your money gets paid into it. You pay your bills out of it. Just normal yeah. everyday account. We kind of call them all savings accounts, but in the US they call them checking accounts because it's. I guess we used to draw your checks from once upon a time. The savings account, I gave you the term deposit analogy earlier, mate, but actually I'm going to change it on you. So apologies for doing that. It almost seems to me like those kind of online high interest savings accounts where you put your money into an ING account and as long as you don't make more than a certain number of withdrawals, you get the extra interest. It feels kind of like those as, as opposed to kind of a, a quasi-term deposit, which is the phrase I gave you. So my apologies for leading up the garden path. Um, but if you combine... Okay, so, what, so in the, what they were saying was you guys can consider the, the kind of transaction accounts as M1. But in the past, you had to pretend that the other stuff wasn't really available for for use, so and that 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 yeah. limitation has been withdrawn.
1: Yeah, so it's a basically quasi. It's a it's a definitional thing, right? So I changed the definition on this other thing, which used to be part of what's called M two, or the other money, and now it's become part of M one. And all of a sudden, because of a definition change, the graph of amount of money available shoots up, and everybody thinks, oh. Man, there's going to be inflation because there's so much money slushing around, but that all that right. money was already there. So, it's, 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 I think it's it's fascinating the stuff that uh, the, the Fed is doing. The other, I think on stimulus, I think there's another interesting thing. So, if you take the total stimulus of 1.9 trillion uh, or make it 2 trillion divided by the population of the United States, then you would think that there is effectively for every, you know, uh, woman, man, and child. There should be something like you know five thousand dollars, right? But there isn't yeah. <laughs> five thousand dollars because it, it's it's very funny in how the sti- even the stimulus might have actually money for things like uh, I, and I don't know, but I've I've heard this in the past, and again I have mm, mm. I should verify this. But <laughs> even stimulus have say money for for foreign, uh, foreign aid, <laughs> so, right? So, yeah, right. Uh, so so, so you might have a two trillion dollar stimulus. Actually, yeah, yeah, the yeah. effective stimulus is not two trillion. It looks <laughs> like two trillion, but it's actually not two trillion. So, there's a, there's oh. a lot of funny things that happen um, with these funny with things. these things. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, one would think that you know everybody gets some cash, but that's not the way it works. The other thing I think I'll point out is um, it, what the Fed has been doing is basically buying corporate bonds, right, right. and and the corporate bond I think strategy I really like that strategy because that's an indirect way of supporting businesses making right, bring, right. keeping the cost of issuing bonds down which allows businesses i guess to you know if instead of re- raising equity they allows them to actually borrow money keeping okay, that yeah. that side of the market operating it, it doesn't dilute the equ- equity it doesn't dilute equity holders while allowing businesses to perform allowing them to continue with business. It doesn't mean that there's going to be no job losses. There have been job losses, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting strategy.
0: I kind of agree, mate. I, I The only the only point of difference I guess I, I have with your view is just that I, I've said before, I, I don't know who's not borrowing money at the current rate, sorry, who is borrowing money at the current rate, who would be buying at a higher rate, or a slightly higher rate, right? Like if if you're a business CFO or a, or a you know, finance manager of some description, you're doing the numbers going okay, well, I've got this great new project and it's going to be really profitable and we can't wait to do it. Uh, and if rates are 2%, we'll borrow. But if rates are 2.5%, we're not going to borrow anymore. You know, we, we, we can't make it work. Now, there, there are always going to be marginal projects, but I've got to say, if I'm in a shareholder of a company and like half a percent change in interest rate is the difference between the project going ahead and not going ahead, I'm like, guys, don't do it. If you're, if you're relying that much on, you know, that smaller movement, and it's, not, I mean, it's a lot of dollars, obviously, depending on the size of the project, but part of me is like, if you can't make it pay at a higher rate, that, that project is obviously so marginal anyway. As a shareholder, I don't want you risking my money. Like I want you risking my money on stuff that has a really high degree of probability and a really high level of profitability and only doing it if it's going to make obvious sense. You know, Buffett talks about if you have to go to decimals, you, you kind of, you're too close to the line. I think for me in this context, it's kind of exactly that, right? It's that sense of if you're that close to the line on this one, I'm pretty happy for you to, uh, <laughs> to, to give that one a pass and wait. So I, I agree with you in the sense that if they're going to do something, Keeping down the cost of borrowing makes a whole lot of sense. I do just wonder whether the the kind of econometricians are getting a little too caught up in the difference between two and two and a half or whatever the numbers end up being. It doesn't really matter. Um, and I'm not saying no rate cuts are useful or no rate increases hurt. They, of course, they do, and they they subtract or add money to the economy. So that's also true. But I don't know. Do you have a thought?
1: Yeah. So I think I think I, I broadly agree with you. I think that the differences I'll point out are as follows. So so I think. What I think the Fed has done in, during the pandemic, I think, is actually very smart compared to what the RBA has done uh, right. in terms of just in terms of. How, so the, here's the, I think here's the problem. The problem is that the bond market is several times the size of the equity market. Mm. Right. And if the bond market freezes, basically supply of money freezes. Right. So therefore, you need the bond market to be functioning. And when I say bond market, it's not just the government bonds that I'm talking about. I'm talking about actually corporate bonds, everything put together. That's like, you know, it's way larger than the... Uh, because that's where all the money from the governments and all the right, municipalities right, right. and stuff. that's where, you know, they are putting all the sovereign wealth funds. Anybody uh, who wants to have cash basically has cash sitting via the bond market. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, the bon- so, yeah. so the bond market is very large. Freezing the bond market directly then flows through the other credit markets. So I think that that was important and therefore actually making sure the bond market is functioning, I think is was a very smart move. The The other thing I'll point out is I think what people need to think about is sort of flow on effects, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, hmm. Let's say I'm a travel company in Australia, the pandemic happened. Uh, yes, the ASX allowed me to freeze, uh, suspend my shares, but I basically hmm. still had to dilute my shareholders to raise money to do whatever I wanted to. If I was listed, if I'm in a U.S. business or international business listed in the U.S. markets, I could basically go to the bond market and borrow money at extremely cheap rates because the Fed enabled that without diluting my shareholders and I could carry on. And therefore, I'm going to come out on the other side at a much better shape, as a much better business with a much better capability of winning business share than businesses here. Okay. Right, and I think that's just the that's what when I say fundamental structural issues, those are the things that I mean. Right, the yeah, structural right. issue the RBA has been focused about is let me just keep the housing market afloat, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's what only thing matters to the RBA. The Fed yeah, right. actually does not care about the housing market, it's not caring about the housing market after the housing market collapsed there, and it's caring about other things which right. I think help longer term job creation business innovation and things like that so I that's the difference uh right now I take your point that after the pandemic has passed yeah. whether the rates you know do they need to I mean my guess would be the the guess would be that they would withdraw the bond buying that they're doing from uh, in you know so basically they buy the bonds to keep you know the, the basic <laughs> yeah. Everything in the short term is supply and demand, right? So if there's yeah. too much demand for those bonds, then the price is basically effectively going to be going <laughs> up, which is what right. <laughs> brings the yields down uh, for the bond market. So that's what the, what the Fed is doing. Over time, I would expect <laughs> that the Fed would withdraw that because the other people who are sitting tight on not buying bonds would actually come back to buy bonds, right? Yeah, right, So okay. so I think that's the difference I, I think at a, at a structural level that I think is, is important. Yeah, um, but, makes sense. yeah, but, I mean, does it matter whether the rates are 2% or 2.5% it shouldn't? That's what I figure.
0: Anyway, let's uh, let's let's move on. Maybe we've got some time for mailbag, which is pretty exciting. We've got some good questions. We've got one comment. Let's start with a comment uh, from a listener, and it's a, a longish one but a useful one. So this one comes from uh, Kate. Kate says, uh, Hi, El Capitan, El Capitan, sorry, and Doc. Get yourself a coffee. I have a bit of a long winded story and a decent amount of well deserved praise for the podcast, please. Now, Doc, we can't go past that, surely. So here we go. No questions this time, Kate says. I've been listening to the back catalogue of podcasts. And I'm finding that any questions that pop up are being answered before I can ask them. That's a good thing. I'm a very happy newish member. She says very in capital letters. Newish member of Share Advisor, Extreme Opportunities and Shooting Stars. I'm a 40-year-old mother of three kids, one-year-old, three-year-old and five-year-old. And I do the bookkeeping for my husband's business from our home office. As you can imagine, I'm a busy woman, but somehow I always find the time to manage my shares and listen to your podcast. Man, I can imagine you're busy. Talk about three three kids under five and a... <laughs> and bookkeeping for the husband's business. That's tough. The way I treat your podcast, she says, and investing in general is as if I'm having an affair with it. Well, I i, I don't know. I, can, I, I can't i can quite uh, support that, but, but Kate, I, I think I understand the context. I get excited about it, she says. I find stolen minutes in my day for it and I happily sacrifice sleep for it. I love it. I'm totally addicted to both. Thank you, Kate. I listen to your podcast, she says, when I'm driving, exercising, cleaning the house or whatever humdrum chore I have to do. For a busy person, that's a great way to get some education and inspiration that having to set aside time specifically to do so. It's also a sneaky way, she says, I like this, to get my young kids used to listening to the jargon and hopefully one day it will spark an interest for them. I'm sowing little seeds, you certainly are. Thanks guys, you're worth your weight in gold. No, not gold, maybe iPhones, she says with a wink. I assume that's for you, doc. Since I left my career outside the home, Kate says, five years ago to start our family, I felt as if I wasn't contributing financially to the household and that was a hard pill to swallow as I've always worked and never relied on anyone else financially. I found myself in a completely different lifestyle and struggled at times with low confidence and guilt of only ever spending and not earning. I know you can never put a price on the value that a stay-at-home parent is providing, but I yearned for something more. Quick aside, Kate, I think you have done a spectacular job doing the um, looking after the kids and and bringing them up, I'm sure, in a wonderful way. So I get the sentiment. Um, I can imagine it would, I have never done it. I can imagine it would really feel strange and weird, Um, but I will support your view that um, absolutely you are providing much more value than you ever could earning a quid working for somebody else. But that being said, Kate goes on, being an investor has given me that focus and sense of pride and achievement that I was missing. And I now feel like even though I'm still not working outside the home, I am making our money work for us and building our empire from behind the scenes. There is more more than one way to skin a cat. Hey, she says. I'm a very independent person. I wanted to establish the majority of my portfolio before paying for advice. I really wanted to say I did it on my own. But really, all I did by not joining your services earlier was cost myself a lot of money by investing in poorly researched companies and letting my emotions dictate my trades. This is why I wanted to share this, Doc. She says, but I did, probably out of sheer luck, have a few multi-baggers. Well done, which kept me inspired and funded until I found you guys. But, she says, and here's a list. If only I hadn't been so proud. If only I had found your services sooner. If only I had found your YouTube videos earlier. Love them, she says. So basic and relevant for the brand brand newbie. Please make more, in brackets. If only I had found your podcast sooner, she says. I wouldn't have made those same rookie mistakes I had and would be in a much better position than I am now. So yes, as a new investor, I made many mistakes, none of which, and I like this too, I actually regret though. I've learned so much about the emotions of investing and it's taught me a lot about my own relationship with money. You've just got to learn from it. Try to manage your egoic monkey brain and continue on fearlessly. But also, thanks for taking action on your sage general advice in capital letters. She understands our need on general advice. She says, I cut my losses and sold my holdings in the companies I had no conviction in and then reinvested the funds in my best ideas at the time. I pulled out of all of my dividend reinvestment plans and instead reinvested the earnings. I withdrew my children's savings from the bank and invested them in a separate account just focusing on ETFs. I've changed our super investment structures to a much higher growth strategy. I didn't panic and sell, but instead invested as much as I could during February and March last year. I got a rate reduction on my mortgage. Hashtag get a better rate. She says, yes, I am hashtagging on an email. Ha <laughs> ha. Sorry, I'm not on any of the socials. I opened up a stake account and started my USA portfolio, which I was actually quite nervous about because of the currency and the difference in scale of it all. But I ripped the band-aid and will never look back now. But more importantly, you have inspired me to ensure my children grow up being economically literate and encouraging them to start investing early for the long term. She says, side business idea, motley fool, real life money management program for school kids. I like that. Thanks ever so much, says Kate. I'm eternally grateful and swear to be your walking advertisement. I just want to say to my fellow listeners, people, please take Scott and Doc's advice, but more importantly, take action in capital letters on that advice. Don't procrastinate about it. Start today. And finally, from probably the biggest advocate for people to get off social media and actually use their time wisely. Hashtag leave Doc alone about all the socials. I'm with you, Doc. Never give in, never surrender, she says with many, many R's at the end. Full on, Kate. I just thought that was great, Doc. It was a really, really long letter, but I I hope it's inspirational for our listeners. I certainly got a buzz out of it because this is exactly why we do this, to help people change their financial lives and improve their financial lives. And It seems like we've helped Kate at least a little bit do that. But mate, um, yeah. Look, I just—I don't know if you have any thoughts, any any reflections on that. I just, again, long, but I just thought it was worth reading in full because it was just such a an important message. I hope for other listeners who may be getting started or maybe you've started, but maybe you need a bit of encouragement or reinforcement, or maybe even a, a chance to change or do something different. So I like that from Kate.
1: Yeah, like a, uh, I think it's a fascinating letter. Thank you very much, Kate. Yes, I'm not going to surrender uh, on the social media thing. I totally get it. Totally, totally get it. Totally agree oh, with come you.
0: come on, come on. Uh, Kate, I, you're
1: I think Kate is right, you know, um, <laughs> and, and I'll also echo the fact that you know spending time with your children and actually um, raising them is a very, very yeah. important thing. It's totally. underrated many times. It shouldn't be underrated. And whether it's it's a man or a woman doing it, whoever is doing it, I think it's very important. Uh, you, you they only grow up once, right? And that's the that's the thing. Totally <laughs> you you Such cannot re you cannot remake that time. You cannot find that time again. The, the final oh, thing it,
0: go
1: on, go on. It, it was one thing I want to say and I think you've said this before but I'm actually and you know uh, I'll try to say it right and I think Kate will get it I'm actually very happy that she lost money made yes. mistakes because and she's learned beautifully from it right because that's actually the lesson right and there's no way you can uh, this is the unfortunate part that you know we could anyone can we can try to teach we can try to tell mm-hmm. but mm-hmm practice makes people perfect practice you know you you can't become a virtuoso without uh, practicing you can't you know so it's practice is important making some of those mistakes is important making them early is even better uh, because you know when you start off and you make some mistakes hopefully you know the mistakes are not big in terms of dollar figures and uh, you learn a lot from us i'm very happy for that and that actually puts you in a much better position to win over the long term so uh, i think that's delightful
0: Love it, mate. Love it. Uh, last quick question. We're almost out of time. I'll sneak one in. Uh, this one's from Vicky. Hi, Doc. What's happening with Big Tin Can? I followed this company for the past year, and I'm impressed with its continual growth. It started to rise gradually, yet has sudden had a sudden fall recently, and doesn't seem to be able to get moving again. Thoughts? Question mark. That's from Vicky, mate. What do you reckon? What's going on with Big Tin Can?
1: Yeah, so Vicky, I wish I knew why the price, uh, I really wish I knew why the price is not moving in the direction I would like it to move or you would Mm -hmm. like it to move. Um, As Vicky, you pointed out, rightly, the company has done all the right things, it's growing fast, it's growing quickly, Um, uh, Its um, certain numbers are moving in the right direction, the business is still moving in the right direction. A couple of things, I've said this before, one of the things to realize is most small caps in Australia, especially on the tech side, have been hit uh, mm. off late, and I can name n, n number of small caps that have pulled back. Yeah. Many reasons. Maybe they should pull back because they had, Pulled ahead, right? We would never know. That's, that's one thing. The number of, is two thing to, uh, to think about is many of these small caps have businesses um, where they earn a majority of their revenue overseas. Strengthening Australian dollar does not help these businesses. And uh, so that's a headwind. Market adjust, adapts for these headwinds as well. So, like, I mean, you know, if uh, the Australian dollar is probably up like ten, fifteen percent since, like, uh, or probably even more, like, probably fifty percent since the bottom of uh, of the February March uh, crash. Right? I think the Australian the, the dollar had fallen to something like fifty cents, uh, or closed about to that. Now it's like closer to eighty cents. <laughs> That's a huge, huge, more than 30 percent increase. So that has an impact, um, I think, on you know those shares would have responded as well to given, to, given the fact that you know they earn um, revenue in Australian dollar in, in, it earn revenue in US dollars and report in Australian dollars. So that's that factor. Uh, longer term though, I still like really like um, and I shouldn't say, still I like um, big tin can. I think it's uh, doing well. It's a higher risk uh, company. It's just by the fact that it's small, it's going to be volatile by the fact that it's because of the fact that it's small, uh, but it's in a good position. It's growing really quickly and it's doing all the right things. So as long as the business is executing, I think you just ride through the volatility. Uh, and you know, as long as you have a diversified for- portfolio of those sort of companies, I think you should do well over the long term. That's what I can say about Big Tin Can. So I have no particular concerns with Big Tin Can uh, at this point.
0: Nice one, mate. Yeah, there's, it, it's so hard to disconnect share price movement from sentiment, right? Your own, your own feelings and emotions of. You know, you just want the shares to go up, and they don't go up, uh, and uh, it's one of the, uh, you know, after after Kate's question and then and then Vicky's question. Now it's just, I'll only read out one thing. You've done a great job answering about the company, mate. I just would say to all of our listeners, please don't let the market tell you what to think or how to think um, on this sort of stuff because it's it's so tempting to kind of you know we've had so many questions. People say, oh look, I, I, this this is going nowhere. Should I sell it and buy something that's going up? And this idea of like you know over three six months, people and I, I get it, right? I get it. You want shares to go up, and if they don't go up, you think, well, hang on, I'll I'll get one that does go up then. Um, you know, you've used the example before, I'm not going to ask you to comment because I haven't cleared this with you in advance and I'm not sure what you've been buying or selling. Um, you know, Tesla went no, literally nowhere for at least five years and then kind of 10 bagged from there at some point, right? And at any one of those points, in you know, those five year times, you could have said, you know what, this isn't working, I'm out. I want something that's going up. Why isn't it going up? And they're reasonable questions. I'm not criticizing you, Vicky, for asking the question. It's exactly the right question. Um, the answer is that in so many different times, Vocus here in Australia was another example many years ago, 2012, 13, went nowhere for, I want to say, 18 months. You know, it's just sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there. And then all of a sudden the market realised what we thought we saw as well, and it went up. Um, There are so many different examples of that happening. Now, it doesn't mean that everything does that, but I I really would suggest to you, you've heard Doc talk about the company, you've heard Doc talk about what he likes about it. Some of the headwinds on the the business in the short term as well, of course. Um, But, you know, he's looking, we're looking super long-term and going, you know what, is this a business that is meaningfully larger at some future point? And if it is, the share price will catch up. It can be frustrating, difficult, challenging, emotionally taxing to wait and watch while everything else is going up. And you think, man, where's my after pay? Where's my, you know, whatever, whatever new hot stock is there, you know, why am I not getting some of that? And I get it. You can't though know what happens next. You don't want to be buying the one that's flying to see, it, only to see it crash after you buy it. Equally, you don't want to jump out of something that hasn't gone up yet and miss the upside. And, and I'm not saying that you can guarantee that with Big Tin Cam, we're not saying that. There's a whole lot of different reasons why it may not make it, as with every other stock that I pick as well. Uh, but. Just, just try desperately not to let the market tell you how to feel about this stuff or when to buy and sell look at the business look at the current price and say if i didn't already own it would i want to buy it at, at today's price given the future doc saying yes absolutely i hope Vicky, you're saying yes absolutely um try desperately if you can to put that <laughs> past price moving out of your head uh and just stick with it stick with stuff that's worth more in the long term i think that's probably the the parting message from me what do you reckon doc
1: I think that's a fantastic way. I'll, I'll I'll point this thing out, right? So think about Afterpay. Afterpay is a great example, right? Afterpay is a great example. People are familiar with this company. It was $8 or something like that. <laughs> that's right. In March,
0: right? So it was $40 so in February. So the whole the whole story. Go make, go make a month for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was like forty. It was $50 plus or something like that. Right. It was like okay. $8 or less than $10 uh, yep. <laughs> very quickly. Now it's over $100, right? Yeah. So. I mean, you know, the st- actually, growth stocks do not go up in a straight line. Mm. They look like a huge straight line um, when you zoom out. Yeah, right? that's a great and, and, point. Right. So when you zoom out, if you look at the Amazon chart from 2001, it looks like a fantastic straight line. <laughs> it's the straight line that you should be riding. Here's the problem. Ruff. Ruff. While trying to ride it, there are points, and I think there's at least one point of when Amazon shares went down 90%. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people sold in that 90% and I think Amazon mm-hmm. has been down more than 30% a gazillion number of times along that way, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, so stuff like that happens and oh, I'm not saying Big Ten Can is going to do the Amazon. All mm-hmm. I'm saying is that, and, I thought, and this is what I heard Scott say, is basically you have to accept volatility. And size your positions accordingly, right? I mean, size your positions so that you can tolerate the yeah, volatility. Have enough yeah, number yeah. of positions that you can manage your volatility, that you're not caught up. You know, if, you have, if your whole portfolio is big thin can, then you've got a problem, right? Because you're going to look at those movements, and you're going to be, you're going to be really crying <laughs> uh, because it's going to hurt. Uh, <laughs> right, right, so, yeah. so uh, you know, right. So, I mean, that's the other thing um, to think uh, to think about. It's just you know, mm-hmm. just manage it. Yeah, again, no risks. I, I There's nothing that I've seen that makes me bearish on the company and the company's report, half your report, is very good, right? And sometimes good companies have a breather.
0: Very good, mate. I like it. Um, let's let's wrap it up. Before we do, though, I want to give our listeners a chance to join you and Kevin at Motley Extreme Opportunities. You talked about Big Tin Can. Vicky asked about Big Tin Can. You can get recommendations on Big Tin Can and a whole lot of other great businesses these guys have dug up at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. And as you would expect, I'm going to say that A, we have a great deal for our podcast listeners and B, it is stupidly cheap. I mean, great value. I mean, I can't remember what i was supposed to say. In any way, have a look. Go to fool.com.au forward slash eo podcast. If the price doesn't amaze, surprise, and delight you, you're a hard person to to please. So go and check it out, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast, where the guys are looking for some of the great big winners of tomorrow with a bit more risk, as I like to always say, because we want to make sure our members join us with their eyes open. Uh, but the guys are doing a spectacular job so far, and I think these are companies, this is an investing approach that really is going to pay for itself many, many, many times over. Again, I can't give guarantees or promises. What I can say is that I'm very pleased and proud of the work the guys are doing. I think it's a spectacular service. They've built a great scorecard of companies. Lots and lots of current buyers, by the way. So you can get started straight away at fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Now speaking of things to do, once you've joined EO, make sure you subscribe to the Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or the new listener app, L-I-S-T-N-R. Like all the cool kids, you take some vowels out because that makes your, makes your app sound more exciting. A listener have done exactly that. They've um, got dispensed with the extra E, L i s t n r. You can get this podcast straight to your device every single episode. And of course, if you like what we're doing, please do leave us a rating or a review. Um, We joke about it every week, but it genuinely does help us uh, become noticed by other people. And if you're enjoying it, we hope that's a good thing. And we hope you you, uh, would expect other people might enjoy it too. And if they do, uh, and if it's good for them, then we'd like you to help us help them find the podcast. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox with some marketing by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. <laughs> That's it for this week's motley full money. Surprise. We're we'll back on Sunday with a special mailbag edition and some foolish insight. Full Fool on. Full on.